Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. For thousands of years, horses were the main source of transportation for kings and armies. They're the only ones who could afford it. Today, for us, they're strong, beautiful animals that most people use for riding or for sport, and sometimes transportation in third world countries. But there's coming a time in the future when they will again be used for war. Horses are mentioned 17 times in the book of Revelation, more than any other book except for that of Second Kings. The most prominent mention of horses in Scripture that most people are familiar with is the four horses of the apocalypse. What do these four horses signify, and how do they affect mankind? That's our discussion for today as we enter into the tribulation period. I'm Debbie Blank. Time to buckle your seatbelts as we now take the treacherous ride through that tribulation period outlined in Revelation beginning in chapter 6. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. In 1924, legendary Notre Dame football coach Newt Rockney had four players in his backfield that were so devastating that a sports writer decided to dub them the Four Horsemen, referencing the biblical Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Decades later, in the wrestling profession, there was a team of four devastating wrestlers, which also became known as the Four Horsemen. And there are other examples and references to the Four Horsemen out there in our culture. The idea is that each man brought to his position an extraordinary destructive power, and together, the destruction was overpowering and inevitable. So, many people unfamiliar with the Bible itself have an idea of the future devastating destructiveness of the true Four Horsemen of the future apocalypse. As always, we need to go back and review where we've been. In Revelation 1.19, we're given an overview of what this book of Revelation is all about. First of all, it's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, there's a mention of the wrath of God and the tribulation period and the new heaven and new earth and judgments and things, but it's all about revealing Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John was told, again in Revelation 119, to write the things which he has seen. That was chapter 1. He was to write the things which are at his time, which were chapters 2 and 3. And then he was told to write the things which will take place after these things, which is chapter 4 through chapter 22. So we have an old outline of the book of Revelation. After these things, according to Revelation 4.1, John was taken up into heaven. That's the example of the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church, then, this tribulation period will take place. That means from chapters 4 through 22, God is sharing future events that have not yet taken place on earth, but will occur prior to Jesus' return, and then chapters 20 to 22 will be after his return. Before we get into chapter 6, we need to review the historic or the prophetic timeline that God lays out throughout Scripture. So you can write a straight line across a piece of paper, and on the left side of that, you'll have the Old Testament. The Old Testament ended during the time of Jesus, when Jesus died, was resurrected, and then rose from the dead. So you could put a straight line up with an arrow, and that's Jesus' resurrection. Ten days after he ascended into heaven, the church began, 
in the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That ushered in the church age, which is where we are today. Period of time when God is using the church through the power of the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel. Well, this church age will end at the rapture of the church. So you can draw at the end of the church age, a line going up with an arrow saying the rapture. And that we know from Revelation 4.1 is going to happen right before the tribulation period. Now, how soon before? We don't know. But the church will be taken out of the way. And then that will usher in the seven-year tribulation period. We know it's seven years long because of Daniel 9.27. We know it's seven years long because as you study the book of Revelation, you see that there are several time periods listed in there like 42 months, 1260 days, how it's divided into two, three and a half year periods of time, which equals seven years. The seven year period of tribulation will end when Jesus Christ returns, which we will study about in Revelation 19. So you can put an arrow coming down at the end of the tribulation period, which is Jesus return to earth. And then when he does, he will reign for a thousand years as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom will end after that thousand years when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth by destroying the current heavens and earth. That's eternity as we know it. That's God's prophetic timeline, which gives you an understanding of where the tribulation falls, since that's our topic of conversation for the next several months as we study the book of Revelation. So we are just finishing the part of Revelation where we're seeing that heavenly throne room and the search for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. So we have a scroll with seven seals on it that needs to be opened, and no one in all of heaven... No one is found worthy to open this, what we think is probably the title deed to the earth, because when Adam and Eve fell from grace, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, they had been given dominion over all the world, but they defaulted then to Satan, and he took over by ill-gotten gains. He took over that aspect of ruling the earth. Truly, God is ultimately the ruler of the earth, as we see here, but Jesus bought back that title deed with his blood, and so we have a lamb as if slain, approaching the throne and taking that scroll out of the right hand of the Father on the throne. They're beginning to open these seals on the scroll. So there are seven seals. Somebody described it as today it would be an encrypted document where only one person would be able to break that encryption code. So what happens upon the breaking of the first seal? Well, first we have to realize that Jesus is opening the seven-year period of time where God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving world. What's going to happen during that seven years? We're going to find out in detail in Revelation. But first, we can go back to Jude chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that gives us a little overview of why it's going to happen. There it reads, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his Holy One to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Did you catch the word ungodly three times there? That shows us God is pouring out his wrath on an ungodly world. And then the passage ends by saying, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it's in time when God supernaturally protects and draws his people, the Jews, to himself, but brings wrath upon an unbelieving world. Now, the gospel is going to be preached during this time. So we know that people will be saved, primarily Jews, because that is God's purpose to bring the Jews to himself. 
I believe Gentiles will also have the opportunity. There are a lot of people that don't believe that. But the key is the gospel will be shared during this time. So while we see information about the tribulation in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Daniel 9 and many Old Testament passages, the most descriptive account of the tribulation period is here in the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 6. So when we look at this scroll that's about to be opened, when that first seal is opened, is that the beginning of the tribulation period you're talking about? Yes, it is. The actual beginning, we think, is when Daniel 9.27 explains that he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And in the middle of the week, he will put an end to sacrifices and grain offerings. So what that tells us is the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the Jews, a firm covenant, which means insolent, demanding, required of the Jews to make this covenant. And he's going to make it for a seven year period of time. That's one of the places we know the tribulation is seven years long. He will break it halfway through and we will see that progression in Revelation. So what's he doing? The Antichrist is coming on the scene with diplomacy. That's exactly what we see with the first horse of the apocalypse, the white horse that comes. Before we read about that in chapter six, verse two, let's go back and read verse one of chapter six. It says, I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a loud voice of thunder, come. We see here what you've just told us. And that is that the lamb is the only one worthy to break the seal. He's broken the first seal now. One of those four strange looking living creatures who are in heaven is going to cry out, come. Interesting that each of these four horses has one of the four living creatures crying out, come. What is interesting as we open each one of these four seals is that God is using the passive voice here, which means that an outside source is allowing these things to happen. And we know that God is the one allowing that to happen. So Jesus opens the first seal. In verse two, we see the first horse of the apocalypse. It reads, and I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. A lot of people think this is Jesus. Well, it's not. Jesus will come riding on a white horse in Revelation 19 as a conqueror. But this isn't Jesus, because this person, he's riding a white horse, which means he's a leader. He's a conqueror, but he has a bow and no arrow. How can you conquer with a bow and no arrow? Well, a bow indicates power and force, but in no arrows means he's not fighting. What does that mean? Diplomacy, strong diplomacy. What's the Antichrist going to do to usher in the tribulation period, according to Daniel 9, 27 that we just read? He's going to force Israel into a diplomatic agreement for seven years. That's the very first thing that we see here. I also think, too, when you see him dressed in white as if he were Christ, and we know, like you said, that Christ will come on a white horse. So it's like he's masquerading as the Messiah. He's masquerading as the Christ, which is what we would often call the Antichrist. He's called by many other names in Scripture. So this is the uh, one who was initiating the tribulation period at the opening of the scroll, but he's not Jesus. So we know that he's not doing what Jesus would do. He has diplomacy, but what I can tell from the rest of Scripture is that it is diplomacy by deception. 
And there's so much deception that we're seeing in the world today and a lot of diplomacy by deception. We've experienced that recently. We know that those kinds of things go on in the world. But this is someone who's going to be the master of that. He's going to be suave and charismatic and everybody's going to think he's wonderful. And as scripture says, many are going to come in his name, but they're not going to be him. And he is the one who is going to be attempting to come in his name. So he is going to come out at conquering and to conquer, but he's going to do it with diplomacy. How is Israel going to allow him to make it a covenant? What's the one thing Israel wants more than anything else? They want peace. In Jeremiah six fourteen, it says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, and there is no peace. That's what they were looking for in the Old Testament. That's what they'll be looking for at this time when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Because we know in the New Testament, it says from 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. See, that coalesces with Matthew 24, when Jesus tells us that the beginning of the tribulation is going to be like birth pangs. Israel is going to be calling for peace and safety. This new world leader, the Antichrist, is going to give them what they want. Now he's going to force them into it. But isn't that what diplomacy is these days? Use Hamas as example. Recently, they were shooting rockets into Israel. They stopped. They were forced into stopping by Egypt and other countries around the world. But their force was backed up by billions of dollars worth of aid into Hamas, which is exactly what they wanted, as well as new power structures, which they gained by shooting rockets at Israel and causing Israel to be in terror for a couple of weeks. So their forced diplomacy of stopping the rockets into Israel was backed up by something that they wanted. And here we're going to see Israel is going to be backed up with peace. It's promised that they will have peace. Well, we're going to see very shortly that that doesn't last for very long. But they're promised peace, so they make an agreement in anticipation of peace. You can go back to September 1993, and you might recall that President Clinton stood at the White House lawn where he had Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin from Israel and the Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Yasser Arafat, shaking hands after they had just signed a peace agreement. What happened in that peace agreement? Israel agreed to give up land and power to the Palestinian Authority in exchange for peace. So we've already seen that laid out. Since the future in the tribulation period is all about Israel, we know that this forced peace is going to be with Israel. And this Antichrist comes to bring that forced diplomacy. Generally, when they have diplomacy like that, they'll declare peace for a time until they can build up their resources so that they're ready to attack again. So it's not like we really, really want peace with you. It's we want a pause in the action until we can build up enough armaments so that we can defeat you. Now, let's remember that when the tribulation starts, it's going to be a period of time that no one has ever seen before. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that this will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Well, that's a pretty rugged expression because Israel has experienced horrible things in their destruction. And they even were eating their children at one point because they had no food when they were being seized by Babylon. And yet the tribulation period is going to be worse. 
Jesus reiterates that in Matthew 24, 21, when he says, for this will be a time of great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. What we're seeing now is fake. It's going to be short-lived with this first horse of the apocalypse because it is ushering in that horrible time of tribulation. Now let's look at something else about this rider on the white horse. It says he has a bow, but he doesn't have arrows. That's why we know it's not going to be a war. And he has a crown. A crown was given to him. In scripture, there's two Greek words for crown. One is Stephanos and one is diadem. A Stephanos is a victor's crown. So here it's called a victor's crown. This man, this Antichrist, is going to be wearing a victor's crown because the crown, it says, was given to him. That means the people chose to make him the leader. Later, he's going to wear a diadem. A diadem is a kingly crown. And at that time, people are going to be forced to worship him as king. And I say forced, they're going to want to but also they're going to be forced to when they take the mark of the beast. And at that time, he's going to be recognized as a king. Here he's recognized as a victor, as a leader, but that will change halfway through the tribulation period. And just to give you a little heads up, there's three times in scripture, and they're all in the book of Revelation, where someone wears a diadem. Chapter 13, we see the Antichrist wearing a diadem crown. We also see in chapter 12, Satan as being described as wearing a diadem, meaning he's in control and he gives his power to the Antichrist in chapter 13. And then finally, ultimately, we see Jesus as the victor, as wearing the kingly crown in Revelation 19 when he returns because he has then conquered Satan and conquered the Antichrist and will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's the wonderful news that's ahead But the next thing ahead in the chronology of Revelation 6 is a second seal is broken and a second horseman appears. And this one, what does this one signify? This one signifies war. So as always, when someone calls for peace, it's short-lived. In Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, it reads, And when he broke the second seal, and that's Jesus, of course, because Jesus is the only one worthy. He's the only one who saved mankind. He's the only one who's in control. He's the only one to be the righteous judge. And by the way, I will tell you that according to John 5, 22, and then 5, 27, God gave Jesus the ability to be the judge. What it says in those passages is that for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. And then, of course, we hear the second living creature saying, come. And another horse, a red horse, went out. That's a very descriptive color. It's the color of blood. Now, Jesus shed his blood for us, but here, blood is going to be shed. goes on to say, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. That means peace was on the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Here we have war that's going to take place. Remember, the book of Revelation is about Jesus and about his dealings with the Jews. So one must assume that this is going to have something to do with the Jews. Maybe it's a world war, though. Maybe it's something different. It says here about the writer that he has a great sword. Again, it was given to him. People wanted him to go to war. They wanted peace to be taken from the world and go to war for whatever reason. Today, when you look at the anti-Semitism that's taking place, the hatred of the Jews for no reason, 
just because they're Jews. You can see how something like this could happen. We've seen Hitler and how he killed 6 million Jews and another minimum of 6 million people. So it's very easy to see how war could come when we think we have a time of peace. He has this sword. This sword is a mikra, which means it's a short sword. It's not a saber. It's talking about hand-to-hand combat. Remember how I said horses were going to be used in the last time? Well, if you're going to have hand-to-hand combat, you're either going to be walking or you're going to be on horses. But there's going to be something that happens that will cause us to do a war that's just man-to-man. I also heard a commentator who talked about the sword. Interestingly enough, it talked about that short sword. It was something that the Romans would use where they could keep it concealed. And sometimes uh, assassins used it. Or if you were going to be deceptive and you were acting as a friend, you could suddenly pull out this sword and start stabbing. So it's like they could go from peace and thinking someone was a friend and everything was peaceful. And suddenly there would be this weapon revealed that would start stabbing and would cause war to happen. And what follows war? Famine. So it's not surprising that when the third horse of the apocalypse is shown, there's famine. In Revelation 6, 5, and 6, it reads, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And this isn't scales for justice. This is scales for famine, because in verse 6 it says, And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius. That means they're paying a full day's wage for a quart of wheat. And then it says, and three quarts of barley, which was the cheapest thing you could get for a full day's wage. But don't harm the oil and the wine. Well, that's unusual. If you understand this, it's saying that people are going to be able to eat. It's going to be so expensive. A day's wage basically for a loaf of bread. But the oil and the wine won't be harmed. Who uses oil and wine? The rich, the wealthy. So we're going to have a division of people in this time period, kind of like the Hunger Games, where you have the wealthy living in luxury, and then you have everybody else who doesn't have any food to eat. It kind of reminds me of what we're seeing in the uh, 99 versus 1% movement that's gone on in our country, even the critical race theory, which is trying to divide our country into the bourgeoisie and the proletariats, just like they did in Marxist communism, the division of people. Then the fourth horse is open, and that's the worst horse of all. Because it says in verse 7, When he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. It's the color of a kind of a putrid green. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. That means people are going to die. And Hades, by the way, is the place where the unbelieving souls go. So that tells us that this is going to happen pretty soon after the rapture of the church because everyone who's going to be killed are undoubtedly going to be unbelievers. Hades was following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. A fourth of the earth. If we have 8 billion people at that time, that means 2 billion people are going to die when this happens. What a tremendous problem that will be with pestilence and bugs and famine and all the things that we will see as a result of death and war and horror. It's like nothing this world has ever seen. 
when we look at this, history proves that we have never had a time where a fourth of the world has been killed at any one time. A lot died during the Black Plague, but not a fourth of the world. This tells us that this hasn't happened yet, which means it's still future. Yes, we've seen diplomacy and we've seen war and we've seen famine. But as we move forward, we've never seen anything like the other things that we're going to see. One of the things that we find very clearly as we look at all of these four seals and the four horsemen is that judgment is coming. We know that for sure. And it's interesting to look at Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, where Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has a fixed day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Judgment is coming. God is giving us every opportunity now before it's too late. Our repentance is a personal decision that each one of us has to make. I can't get into heaven through my parents or through my religion or through my traditions or anybody else or any way else or any good work or deed. The only way that we can get into heaven is by believing in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ezekiel fourteen nineteen to 21, we realize how personal a decision this is. It talks there by saying, or if I should send a plague against the country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off men and beasts from it, even though Noah and Daniel and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. So God is saying here that three righteous men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, could only save themselves. They couldn't save their families, their son, their daughter. Ezekiel goes on to say, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. We must make a personal decision to turn to Jesus Christ. The time's coming of God's wrath. This is going to be horrors on earth that we've never experienced. But we don't need to fear if we have turned our lives over to Jesus Christ. Revelation is a drama of the triumph of Christ. It's not a horror story, even though it certainly reads like that in many places. Jesus is drawing us to himself throughout this whole book. The question is whether we will turn to him. The reality is Satan is a defeated foe in here. He may have power. He may have diadems where he's a kingly beast and he gives his authority to the kingly Antichrist, but it's only short-lived because Jesus Christ will return. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the one who is worthy to open the seals. He's the Mighty One of Israel. He's the soon-coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If we are a child of the living God, our hope, our faith, and our trust is in Him for the future, for all eternity, if people don't believe in Jesus, then they are going to experience the wrath of God here on earth that's worse than we've ever seen in all humanity. But worse than that, they're going to spend all eternity in hell, away from God, a place where the worm never dies, the thirst is never quenched, the fire is never extinguished. It is going to be the worst hell we could ever imagine, as described in scripture. So now is the time for us to turn to Jesus. Now is the time to commit our lives to him, surrender to him so we can enjoy the rest of the time he gives us on earth with him guiding us and with us serving him. And in addition, sharing 
Christ with other people because we shouldn't want anyone to go through the wrath of God that people are going to experience. So let's be looking to what God would have us do. Let's be sharing Jesus Christ. Let's be living for Jesus Christ because we have no time to waste. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.